This week, on Myths and Legends, there are two more stories from Greek mythology. On the first, Zeus' questions of saving the world, again, is even worth the hassle. And on the second, we're starting the stories of the Amazons, warrior women from Greek mythology, and we'll see the slowest, most non-committal kidnapping of all time. The creature this time is just a misunderstood horse monster, who'll be really fun at parties, if he didn't accidentally impale all the guests. This is Myths and Legends, episode 93A, Wonder Woman. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories you might not have heard, but really should. Today's episode is brought to you by Spotify. Whether you're into podcasts about ghastly crimes or hip-hop rhymes, there's always something new to discover on Spotify. With a mix of originals and many of the world's most popular shows, listening to podcasts on Spotify is easy. Just open the app, tap browse, and dive into their growing library. Subscribe to your favorites, including our entire archive, so you'll never miss a show. You can also download podcasts for those moments when you're up in the air or going underground. Podcasts on Spotify are streaming right now, so go check them out. Today's episode is brought to you by The Shape of Water. If you love a good story, Fox Searchlight has an intriguing new movie from visionary filmmaker Guillermo del Toro called The Shape of Water. With its all-star cast, including Sally Hawkins, Octavia Spencer, Michael Shannon, and more, The Shape of Water is an otherworldly fable about the unpredictable nature of love. It's really one of those stunning films that's really worth experiencing in theaters. Don't miss The Shape of Water, now playing in select theaters. Today's episode is back in Greek mythology. And though you don't need to have heard the previous episodes, in the past two, the Olympians, so Zeus, Hera, Apollo, Artemis, and others, narrowly defeated two groups of giants that tried to beat them. The last one involved 24 giants, flinging flaming logs on Olympus. And after they were defeated, the giant's mother and Zeus's grandma, Gaia, gave birth to the worst monster in Greek mythology, Typhon. And he was coming for Zeus. Zeus facepalmed. It was like when you go to the beach, but you keep finding sand for a while afterwards. Except that, for Zeus, there were charred oak logs. The attack of the giants was a couple weeks back. And while things were mostly on the up and up, and the repairs were going well, they were still discovering nasty surprises around Olympus. This one had smashed most of the wine. Zeus sighed. Could this day get any worse? But then it did. When the earth shuddered and the sky went dark because a monster born to the earth in Tartarus had risen from the depths and spread its wings for the first time, it turned to the sky and roared and looked at Olympus. It took one miles long lurch toward Olympus. And Zeus uttered a, oh, come on, before he rushed upstairs to the pavilion to, once again, confront a world-ending catastrophe. There hadn't been dreams, there hadn't been warnings, there hadn't been anything until that morning. The Olympians looked on the monster that towered miles into the air, the thing that looked down on them, even leagues away. It had feet of writhing snakes, hands consisting of nothing but snake heads, which, yeah, it would be grippy, but also very unpleasant in a handshake, and wings that stretched on for miles and miles in each direction. The head of the creature whose wings bathed the earth in night, who had been created to destroy the Olympians, was a donkey. I guess all the attributes can't be winners. Anyway, the underwhelming head had some pretty noteworthy compensation in the glowing red fire eyes and mouth that spewed flaming boulders. Didn't we just do this like 
twice, Zeus said to the exhausted assembly of Olympians. Zeus looked at the looming monster on the horizon. He turned to the others. Alright, anyone have any dreams or premonitions about this one? No? No idea how to beat a donkey-headed monster as big as the sky? The assembled Olympians shook their heads. Okay, well, what does everyone say to running away? Athena stepped in front of her father and said that she couldn't believe Zeus was just going to give up and hand the world to this monster. After all they had been through over the past few months, he was just going to roll over? Well, he could give up, but the Olympians never would. They would stand and fight and defend this world from whatever monsters came for it. Really? Zeus asked. Because they all look like they want to come with me and run away, like, right now. I'm looking around, getting a lot of head nods. Basically, you're the only one who wants to stay and fight. Zeus even put it to a vote, and yeah, Athena was the only one who wanted to stay and fight. The rest wanted to follow Zeus into exile. He even said he had a fun plan. The assembled gods said they really didn't even care. Anywhere not under the shadow of a monster with snakehead hands was good enough. It was an admittedly low bar, but hey, here they were. Zeus looked at Athena and said that they'd be down in Egypt if she needed them for anything else other than fighting giant monsters. Zeus snapped his fingers, and all the Olympians but Athena abandoned Olympus to the monster that could crush all of them with its littlest snake face finger. Because at this point, who needs the hassle? Though they were happy to have Typhon, the monster, in their rearview mirror, they were pretty unhappy with Zeus's idea of a fun retirement plan. Farm animals, Hera said, inspecting her hoof. He had thoughtfully turned her into a white cow. Well, just animals, Zeus said in his ram form. They were in an especially fertile area of Egypt, and he explained to them that they couldn't just stay in their god forms. How was that hiding? There was a collective eye roll from Apollo Crow, Dionysus Goat, Artemis Cat, Aphrodite Fish, Ares Boar, Hermes Ibis, and more. Retirement as an animal was not as good as it sounded, and it doesn't really even sound that good. They weren't farm animals, so no one was caring for them, and they had to spend all their time trying to find food and not get eaten, all while ignoring the earthquakes that came from Greece in the north, a constant reminder of their cowardice. It was a number of weeks until Athena arrived, her armor battered, and her clothes and hair singed in places, seeing that if Zeus didn't snap out of it and come fight Typhon, everything would be lost. It had been hyperbole the last time they talked, but seriously, if he didn't come now, that was it. He had enjoyed the perks of being the king of the gods. Now it was time to face the responsibility. Zeus looked at the Olympian animals urging him to go and bleated a, fine, I'll do it. Turns out being a farm animal all the time is really boring. I mean, I've been a farm animal before, but it's usually just a trick woman into you know what? That's not really important. Athena said that she was proud of her father for doing the right thing. Eventually, and after he was bored with all other options, she told him that, in her travels, she had learned of something that could harm the monster. She would take Zeus to it. Zeus looked on the giant flint sickle. It looked like it had been crafted by titans, by giants. Zeus was able to wield it, though only barely. He held it aloft, swung it, and felt its razor-sharp edge. Yeah, that's the sickle that was used by your father, Cronus, 
while he was still inside your grandma to castrate Uranus, your grandfather, Athena informed Zeus, who immediately dropped the skull to the ground in disgust. Why didn't she leave with that? Athena ignored him. Now, Zeus needed to show this thing that he was truly king of the gods. He needed to show Typhon that the world didn't belong to monsters. All right, so that was a bad idea, Athena said a few hours later, covered in blood and returning to the Olympians who were packing up their things in Egypt. Zeus is dead. Well, as dead as we can be. She decided to back up and explain. It had gone really well at first. It was a cool father-daughter battle, where Zeus started it by calling down lightning on the creature. It was stunned, and Athena distracted it so Zeus could fly in with the flint sickle and see if this was really the secret weapon against the monster. Zeus ran the blade across the thing's chest and watched an ocean of blood pour out. The monster bayed, remember, it has a donkey head, and flew away from Zeus and Olympus. It was going north. Zeus, sickle in hand, gave chase, and they flew past seas and forests and deserts before coming to Mount Cassius in northern Syria. The creature disappeared into the clouds, and Zeus followed. This was a mistake. It was waiting just out of sight, and as soon as Zeus passed into view, it swatted the king of the gods and both he and the sickle went flying. Zeus recovered, but the sickle dropped into the ocean. The king of the gods gritted his teeth and turned back to Typhon. Sickle or no, he would show this thing who was king. He leapt with all of his force into the thing's chest, and Typhon didn't move at all. The flaming donkey eyes looked down at Zeus, and the Olympian saw a wall of snake heads coming for him. He couldn't die, but there were things worse than death like having every muscle torn from your body by angry snakes. Zeus took out as many of them as he could, with as many lightning bolts as he could muster, but soon, the king of the gods was overwhelmed. The last thing he remembered was the snake fangs latching into him everywhere and tearing at him. Athena saw that and immediately flew to Egypt, informed them of Zeus's defeat, and checked to see if anyone was a deer yet, because hiding sounded pretty nice right about now. Typhon had taken all of Zeus's muscles, themselves indestructible, and put them in a sack. And then he gifted the sack to his sister, Delphine, who hid them in her cave. The Olympians stood in shocked silence. Until finally, two stepped up. The two who were probably least likely to take on a monster. It was Hermes, the messenger god, and Pan, the god of shepherds. Pan is the half-goat guy, who plays, get this, the Pan flute, and whose cries instill people with, you'd probably never guess it, panic. Delphine, next to her dripping bearskin sack of god muscles, heard a spooky noise from somewhere in the house. Not making the mistake of every horror movie ever and investigating the sound, she just ran. Hermes flew in there quickly, grabbed the sack, and flew out before she returned. There's another version, but the Olympians recruited the help of a mortal, a guy we've talked about, named Cadmus, the king of Thebes. Cadmus casually asked Delphine if he could borrow the muscles of Zeus. He was restringing his lyre. She thought about it, when Typhon asked her to guard it, did he not really mean give it to any passing mortal as a favor? He probably did. She handed it off to Cadmus and made him promise to stop by and play something for her. And when she closed the door, she heard another knock. It was Apollo, who shot her in the head with arrows. If you're wondering why he didn't just start by doing that, instead of having the whole Cadmus caper, well, yeah, so am I. They found Zeus back on Mount Cassius. And after several painful hours... The king of the gods rose. He didn't say a word. He only grumbled. 
and he made his way back to Olympus. Most of it had been raised by Typhon, but Zeus saw that his stables were still intact. There, behind a fallen pillar, he found a friend. Well, less a friend and more of a captive after he shot the animal's true master out of the sky. It was Pegasus. Zeus attached Pegasus to one of the still remaining chariots, gathered all the thunderbolts he had left, and followed the earthquakes. He found Typhon north of Thrace. The monster was completely healed from the strike with a sickle and took one look at Zeus before kneeling down, grabbing a mountain at its base and tearing it from the ground. It flung the mountain at Zeus, but the grim, recently reassembled face of Zeus just sneered. He shot off his thunderbolts and blasted the mountain out of the sky, but he didn't stop there. He struck each of the pieces of the mountain individually so that the donkey monster could have a taste of flaming boulders being flung at him. Typhon, realizing that, wow, that's what was happening every time he opened his mouth? Eugh, that was not pleasant at all. He fled from Zeus. He flew south, over the Aegean, and over to Italy. Zeus could see Pegasus was starting to get tired, and figured he should try to slow Typhon down. In a power I wasn't aware Zeus had, the king of the gods lifted a mountain out of the sea and flung it down on Typhon. Expecting the monster to get up any moment, Zeus readied another clutch of thunderbolts and waited, and waited, and waited. Then... After kind of too long, the top of the mountain began to glow red. Zeus gritted his teeth and readied himself for the attack. But another 15 minutes passed before Zeus dared to glance down into the hole at the top of the mountain. There was nothing but fire. Zeus was confused. It looked like Typhon was just dead. And so he returned to the Olympians in Egypt and then again went back to Olympus where they again sought to put their lives back together. It wasn't until a few days later that the three visitors stopped by, and the Olympians learned what really happened to Typhon. The monster, after being wounded by the sickle that castrated Cronus, and while Zeus was lying as a heap of bones on a mountain somewhere, went to the three fates and demanded something to heal him. They politely told him that he should check his attitude. No one demanded things of fate, but he kept pushing, and so they gave him a remedy. It did heal his chest, but it also had the side effect of making him mortal. He should have listened to that super fast disclaimer in the commercial. There's a big lesson here, and a little lesson. The big one is that no one, not even monsters that can overmatch the gods, can command their own fate. The little lesson is that if you threaten someone's life, and they immediately sneer at you and give you a potion, do not take that funny-looking potion. Oh, and Typhon? Well, he apparently still exists to this day. With the fire and the rocks, he's buried underneath the volcanic Mount Edna in Sicily. talking all about our old friend Theseus and our new friends, the Amazons, but that will be right after this. All right, now back to the show. It's a bit of a jump, but we're going to stay in Greek mythology for this next story. It's the story of Theseus and the Amazons. It's back a bit in our timeline. It takes place during Hercules' labors, the one where he's looking for Hippolyte's belt, Hippolyte being the queen of the Amazons. In this, Theseus has already killed the Minotaur and become kind of king of Athens. Theseus, slayer of the Minotaur, king of Athens, and now proud companion of Hercules' ninth labor, was bored. The whole thing started out strong. After a trip out east to get the Golden Fleece, Hercules, Theseus' childhood hero, asked him to come along on one of his famous labors. On their first stop, they chanced on an island inhabited by the sons of Minos, 
the kind of stepdad of the Minotaur that Theseus had killed in the labyrinth. They killed two of Hercules' companions, and Hercules killed two sons of Minos, an act which Theseus emphatically did not have a problem with. Unfortunately, Hercules demanded two warriors of equal or greater value, and since the only people on the island were the sons of Theseus' mortal enemy, those two guys had to join their crew. At least Theseus got his own boat. After the quest for the Golden Fleece, he and Hercules had been through a lot, so Hercules trusted him with half the expedition. They ended up defending a good king versus an evil invading king, and Hercules, Theseus, and the others were held up as heroes. And Hercules got a country named after him. That will be a life-defining achievement for most of us. For Hercules, it was just another Thursday. Now, they sat rocking in their boats, just off the beach of Amazonia. That was the real reason they were there. Hercules, as his ninth labor, was tasked with getting the belt of Hippolyte, the queen of the Amazons. It had been given to her by her dad, Ares. It didn't do anything, it was just a belt. They all had a really good time and a fun stay in Amazonia. Hercules and Hippolyte got on very well. In fact, many of the Amazons and the Greek men did. But now it was time to go. Theseus had even met someone. Her name was Antiope. She was the sister of the queen and another daughter of Ares. It was sad to say goodbye, but they had to go home. He had a kingdom to rule. And Theseus told Antiope that he only had so much power and the Greeks, for as great as they were, would not be down with the whole matriarchal warrior woman thing. It was then that he heard a splash of an oar near the side of the boat. It was Antiope, there to say one final goodbye. She kissed him, and they embraced. Joking about Hercules and Hippolyte, Antiope said that her sister was going to give Hercules the belt, but they were both taking their time with it. She guessed that Hippolyte was having a hard time saying goodbye too. But they couldn't hear what the pair was saying to one another. The boats were too far away. They did, however, see the smiles fade. First, Hippolyte's than Hercules's. She looked over her shoulder and saw something that caused her to recoil. She stepped back from the looming figure and clasped the belt back around her waist. She barked a command, and one of her servants produced some knives and tossed them to her, right before being cut down by Hercules's men herself. Hercules and the others turned to look at the coast of Amazonia, but all they saw was bronze. The Amazons, fully armed, were coming for them, and Tyope screamed she watched her sister slash and stab at Hercules. The only problem? She didn't realize that the lion cloak couldn't be pierced. The wall of muscle calmly picked up a spear off the ground and impaled the queen of the Amazons. He wrenched the belt from her corpse before tossing her in the water. He turned and barked at his men to get out of here. The men on Theseus' ship did not need that order. They were already rowing. They needed to get out to sea. But first, they turned they needed to take care of one final problem. They turned to Antiope, but only saw Theseus. He stood with her behind him, telling them that this was a mistake. Antiope didn't know anything about the betrayal. Antiope, stunned by watching her sister being cut down by Hercules and watching her fellow Amazons attack the Greeks en masse, could only nod. She couldn't have known that Hera had come in the form of an Amazon warrior and whispered in the ears of the woman as soon as Hippolyte had left. She couldn't have known how quickly those seeds of doubt would grow, or how merciless Hercules would be at any hint of betrayal. Theseus batted back the spear points, telling the men of his ship to back off. He was king, and she was now under his protection. The occasional arrow thudded into the hull of the ship as the Greeks sped away from Amazonia. They were moving fast enough to outpace the woman, but 
Theseus knew that there was no way they could go back. They couldn't even slow down, or the next thing they knew, women would be pouring onto their boat, and then their blood would be pouring off of it. Theseus had heard the stories. There was a reason even Hercules was running away. He had killed the Hydra, the Nemean lion, and more, but even Hercules ran from the Amazons. No, there would be no taking Antiope back. Theseus turned around to look at Antiope, still in stunned silence after the betrayal. Her brief goodbye having turned into a slow-motion kidnapping, he asked her the only question that seemed appropriate at the time. So, wanna get married? The Greeks had a complicated relationship with strong women, and the Amazons are no exception. There's no clear root word for Amazon, and they appear in many different cultures. Some say that it has an Iranian root word, meaning warriors. Others have Slavic origin, meaning manless or without husbands. And the Greeks kind of retrofitted their own meaning to the word. A guy in late antiquity, or the early Middle Ages, so nearly a millennia after the events of today's stories are set, said it meant that the Amazons were, quote, without breasts, because of a notion that they either cut or burned one of their breasts, so that they could be better shots with a bow or spear. This is absolutely a later interpretation, because most ancient Greek art depicts the Amazons having two breasts. The ancient Greek writers had a lot of other names for Amazons. Herodotus, an ancient historian, called them, quote, killers of men, destroyers of men, and murderesses. Homer called them those who fight like men, and the writer of Prometheus Bound, a major source for the Prometheus episode, called them simply those who loathe all men. Now, none of these are sufficient, but if you put them all together, you start to see a picture of how the ancient Greeks viewed the Amazons. And for a profoundly patriarchal society, it was not great. Before going on, I should say that, mythology aside, there were not historical Amazons. That being said, the Greeks absolutely thought that there were historical Amazons. I get a lot of emails asking how much the Greeks believed in their own myths. That's not really a question I can answer. But given how many people outside the normal mythology writers talked about the Amazons, they absolutely believed that the group existed. If you're wondering how a group comprised of one sex continues past a generation, well, there were some stories, like earlier, where a group of heroes would pop in and help them solve that problem for another generation. And there were stories where they just visited their neighbors, the Gargarians, once a year. A fun weekend was had by all, and roughly nine months later, the Amazons would return bearing boys. They kept the girls to raise them as Amazon warriors, but the boys would return to be raised by the village. That is the very nice version of this. In some, the boys are just flat out killed, and while that's still harsh, it's nicer than what the most disparaging of the Greek stories say. In those, the boys were hobbled, or they had their ankles broken, to the point where they didn't heal right. In that way, the boys would never be able to run, and they'd be forced to serve the women forever. Now, these cultures probably didn't exist in the ancient Greek world, but there were ones where men and women were a little more equal than in ancient Greece. An admittedly low bar, but whatever. The Greeks called them Scythians, but that's a catch-all term for the various tribes that lived northeast of Greece, around the Black Sea. In those cultures, boys and girls wore the same clothes early on, and women could challenge men in contests, lead raiding parties, and even participate in battle, attributes that the story of the Greeks followed to their not-at-all-natural conclusions of an all-female society, where man-hating women broke the ankles of young boys. Arithia paddled out to Hippolyte's body, rocking gently on the waves, and framed by deep, sickly red. They pulled her aboard, 
and covered her. Erythia had watched her sister die, and the other, who was saying goodbye to that king, get taken. Erythia shook her head. It was one thing to come to their land and make war. The Amazons did that all the time. They loved that stuff. It was another to come in as friends, betray and murder their queen, and kidnap Antiope. This would not stand. Erythia racked her brain. The men were really only good for one thing, so the Amazons didn't really pay attention to the weird foreign place names. Or, well, even the names of the men. Everyone knew the big one was Hercules, and she was trying to think about her sister talking about that littler, weaselier one. She stopped their boat, closed her eyes, and focused. Theseus. The name came to her about a minute later. She smiled. Athens. He was king of a city called Athens. That was easier. The guy never stopped talking about it. She watched the ships disappear over the horizon, but didn't follow. Instead, she ordered the woman to turn around and paddle back to Amazonia. The Greek ships were larger and well-manned. The Amazons would never catch them at this point, but they knew where the Greeks where her sister, Antiope, would be. Orithia hoped Theseus and Athens had an army, because he would need one. In the end, only several of Theseus's men sustained several wounds when they refused to turn back to Amazonia. Only Theseus was able to talk Antiope down from her blood rage. He said he loved her. Did she love him? She said she did. And he asked what would happen to him, even if he returned to Amazonia, gave her back, and threw himself on her sister's mercy. She hesitated. She knew that there wouldn't be any mercy. She was stuck. She hated Hercules, loved Theseus, and missed her home. She wondered if she'd ever see it again. Still, she knew as soon as that big idiot on the other boat stabbed her sister, her life had been changed forever. She agreed to go along with the Athenian, she agreed to be his wife. Theseus, for his part, knew things were serious when he wasn't tempted, not even a little, to leave her to die on an island. Theseus was growing up. Before going on, I should say that this story varies wildly. There's a version where Antiope betrays her sister and her people and leaves with Theseus willingly. There's a version where she's a spoil of war, captured by Hercules and just tossed to Theseus. There are versions that did not happen with this particular trip with Hercules, but years later, when Theseus is in middle age, and she's an emissary coming to a ship from Amazonia. And Theseus shrugs, saying, yeah, she'll do, and pulls up anchor and abducts her. Like most stories, there isn't one version. But this is worse than usual. I landed somewhere in the middle, with her actually liking Theseus, and the abduction being, well, still an abduction, but somewhat accidental. Antiope struggled to rise from the chair. Why was it so hard to get up? She looked down as she felt the baby kicking. Again. Oh, yeah. That was why. She had been in Athens just a month or two when she became pregnant. She knew exactly what she would name the baby. She would name it, boy or girl, after her sister, Hippolyte, the queen of the Amazons that Hercules had killed. The people celebrated Theseus' new wife publicly, though privately, everyone looked on her as something of an oddity. The Athenians couldn't wrap their minds around her world, her people. She was alternatively a horror and a sideshow act to them. Athens was lonely, and it wasn't infrequent that she would find herself in the cliffs, 
facing north and looking toward home, dreaming about her past life. That life was coming for her, though. Her sister, Arithia, wasn't one to rush into big decisions. She didn't know the Greeks beyond this group of heroes that came to their lands. What if they had whole armies of Herculeses? She went north, to the Scythians, to seek their help. They agreed. They had heard of the budding civilization to the south, one that was already pushing north. Arithia breathed deeply of the first winter's chill. She had her army. The Amazons led them south, and they timed it perfectly. They didn't even need to waste days ferrying people across the Bosphorus, the strait that serves as the kind of modern-day dividing line between Asia and Europe. It was frozen solid, so the Amazons rode across it. The Amazons rode out ahead, and no one had seen the fury like the warrior woman. As they dropped down into villages at night, and, with knives to their throats, the locals pointed their way to Athens, and then watched as an army marched past them. This continued as the Amazons and Scythians passed through Thrace, Thessaly, and Boeotia. Finally, months later, Arithia saw the Acropolis rising from the sleeping city of Athens. No walls. No defenses. Not even someone standing guard. She could walk right in there and stab Theseus in his sleep. She wouldn't do that. She wouldn't cowardly murder someone in cold blood. She wasn't Hercules. She would face Theseus like a woman and cut him down in his own city, in front of his own people. She would show him the cost of taking from the Amazons. She would make him pay with blood. But first, there was something she had to do. They had taken a cow earlier that day, and that night, Arithia led it up to a hill near the Acropolis. She forced it up onto the rock, and after saying prayers to her father, Ares, the god of war, she cut the cow's throat and watched it bleed out on the hill. That hill would forever be known as Ares Hill. Theseus heard reports in the morning and walked up to the Acropolis to see it for himself. The flies were already gathering around the dead cow. Someone had taken it up there, slaughtered it, and just left it. No one knew the meaning, but all agreed that it was an ill omen. More strange news came from the south. One single ash-covered survivor, he told tales of an army that had come marching through their lands. Walled cities collapsed before them, and he had heard some talking in the escape. They said they were heading down to Laconia to cut off Spartan aid. The tales of the Spartan warriors had traveled as far as Scythia, and the Amazon queen didn't want any of the Spartans coming to help the Athenians. A chill shot down Theseus' spine, and he was only able to utter a, what was that name you just said, before he heard the horns. They all had heard the horns, including Antiope upstairs. She was nursing her baby boy. She had kept the plan of naming him after her sister, she named him Hippolytus, and she never knew that she could love a boy so much. But still, she nearly dropped him out of shock when she heard the horns. She had heard them before. She would know them anywhere. They were her horns. The Amazons had come for her. The palace was a flurry of activity. Theseus ran through, practically screeching to his people to prepare for battle. The enemies were at the gates. Well, they didn't even have gates. The Amazons were likely already in the city. He knew the Spartans would crush the Scythians, but not in time. Theseus trembled. He might die this day. He rushed through the halls. He wasn't going for his men, but his wife. He didn't know what to expect when he turned the corner, but he was still surprised. She, only days from childbirth, was putting on her Amazon armor. Theseus didn't even know she had kept it. He stood stunned, but shook his head. He announced that he would handle this. She was forbidden from leaving this palace. She rolled her eyes. 
dropped her short sword into its scabbard and pushed past him. He didn't try to stop her. For all of Theseus's faults, he knew better than that. Next week, we'll see the war between the Amazons and the Athenians and finish up the love story of Theseus and Antiope, where Theseus uses that amazing judgment and decision-making that he's so well-known for. The creature this time is the Centichora from medieval Greece. The Centichora was given the name the cruelest beast on earth. I guess mainly due to its alleged desire to stab stuff. It's a big monster with the chest and thighs of a lion, the tail of an elephant, and the body and feet of a horse. Its head is shaped like a barrel with two big eyes popping out. Its penchant for stabbing comes from its two horns. The Centichora doesn't have ears, but two horns it can move around. They are four arm lengths long and can face forward or back. The Centichora likes to mix it up a bit and have one horn face forward and the other one behind him so he can enjoy some stabbing from any direction. The natural enemy of the Centichora is one that probably deserves to be in the running for the cruelest beast upon the earth, not only because it's a giant snake that poisons everything around it, but for how it likes to hunt for the Centichora. I guess it's really easy to sneak up on the creature because it has horns instead of ears. And while the Centichora sleeps, the Basilisk will slither up and strike it between the eyes. Unlike pretty much everything the Basilisk attacks, the Centichura is resistant to the poison, but not resistant enough. In a matter of minutes, that barrel head will swell, well, even more than it already is, and those two big eyes will pop out and roll away, rendering the Centichura both blind and deaf. And the Basilisk will commence with that fun afternoon of cat and mouse, or Basilisk and Centichura, before just eventually killing the thing. Okay, so hear me out, but I don't think the Centichura is that cruel, or at least that it deserves the moniker of cruelest beast upon the earth. I think that it just has terrible spatial awareness. I know I do. I can't carry a ladder without putting everyone around me in mortal danger. I think the Centichura is the same way. It went to some get-togethers with other mythological creatures, excitedly turned around, and bam, he just kebobbed an elf. In the frantic apologies, maybe he got a centaur, and a mermaid too, and then it was just over. Friendless and officially uninvited to the meetups, he wandered out to the hills of Greece, and there became easy pickings for giant snakes. That's it for this time. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to other music in the show notes, and I want to say thanks again to The Shape of Water for sponsoring us this week. From visionary filmmaker Guillermo del Toro comes Fox Searchlight's new movie, The Shape of Water. It's an otherworldly fable about the unpredictable nature of love, with an all-star cast that includes Sally Hawkins, Octavia Spencer, Michael Shannon, Richard Jenkins, Michael Stuhlbarg, and Doug Jones. It's a stunning picture that must be experienced on the big screen. The trailer hooked me, and I'm really glad I went to see it. Don't miss The Shape of Water, now playing in select theaters. Today's episode was written by me, Jason Weiser, and produced by Carissa Weiser. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. Hold up. 